On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we are joined by Teresa Kanglo, the founder and CEO of Blue Marble Pictures and Blue Marble Management. Blue Marble Pictures has an exclusive multi-year producing deal with Apple TV, and through that deal is executive producing the series that we are loving, Pachinko. Blue Marble Management represents an impressive list of Oscar, Golden Globe, and Emmy award-winning artists. Prior to Teresa spent 14 years as both an agent and a partner at William Morris Endeavor, where she negotiated revenue in excess of half a billion dollars on behalf of her clients. We are thrilled to have this time with you on Pop Fiction Women. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you all. First of all, congratulations on Pachinko. The show is, I think, even better than the book. Not that the book was lacking, but the show just brings the whole thing to life. The scenery, the water, which I love, the backdrop, the costumes. It's breathtaking. The story was perfect in the book, but the show elevates it to all of our senses. And my mouth is just watering thinking about uh, Sunja cutting the kimchi, which I happen to personally love as Kate knows. No, we are really loving it. And I wanted to start by asking you to put this maybe in a little context. Like when you first pitched this story four years ago, it was pre the Oscar award-winning movie Parasite, before the commercial success of Crazy Rich Asians movie. It was a really very different time. And here you were pitching a global series told in three languages with an all-Asian cast. I mean, what gave you the belief that this story could get made in spite of these potential barriers? It's a good question. First, I've always viewed my career in terms of representing artists. Whenever a client tells me, this idea is really hard to solve, but I really love it, I can't get it out of my head, I always say, focus on that one, because that one is the one that they're most passionate about. And when an artist is passionate about something, it has a better chance of getting made. Because I think passion is contagious and ultimately that makes it easier for me to sell it, bring it to life. So I first heard about the book when I was at WME. And prior to that, when I was at UCLA, I was studying Asian American studies and anthropology. And I had come across in one of my classes, my professor had talked about Zainichi Koreans. I never heard about Zainichi Koreans before. These are Koreans who live in Japan, who stayed in Japan beginning in Japanese occupation all the way till now. And this is a community of Koreans I really had not known about. I ended up writing a research paper on Zainichi and I learned about that this group of Koreans were not able to become citizens in Japan. They were stateless. They had to carry alien registration cards and they didn't have many financial opportunities. And one of the jobs that they could have was being a uh, pachinko parlor owner or working at a pachinko parlor. So that always stayed with me. And years later, when I was at the agency, I heard about this book. It was a new book. It was not 
as well known as it is today, obviously, this is several years ago. But what I did understand is that what made it hard to sell was what made it special. Meaning all these things that you described about it, to me, I thought that's the opportunity actually. And also being Korean American, my parents immigrated from Korea, I felt this personal kinship to it. And I felt that the novel really captured what it felt like to be an immigrant, child of immigrants. And the other thing I felt is that it was very universal, especially when you grow up in America, everybody is an immigrant, actually. If you look far back enough, someone made that leap. And in this story, the character Sonja is the woman who made that jump. And so we all have, our showrunner Sue Hugh said this early on, every family has a Sonja. And I believe that to be true. So the opportunity was the fact that it hadn't been made before. And um, Sue, our showrunner, had this incredible vision for the story. But we did have conversations early on, she and I, that it was going to be very challenging to sell. And it may not sell. But she came up with this incredible vision. And I said I would figure out the strategy of how to get it sold. Yeah, that is the key. You can make something that sells that ends up being disposable. But when it's a harder sell and you do it, it is special. It really hits nerves wider than you would even think. And my Sanja is Rosa, my grandmother, my 90-year-old grandmother. She is that centerpiece of our family. So this is the first show that Blue Marble Pictures is producing. And before I get into a little bit more, I want to talk about the inspiration for the name of your company, because I think it's perfect that this is the first show. So tell us what the meaning of Blue Marble Pictures is. Sure. When I left to start Blue Marble, it was two years ago, and it was the start of the pandemic, and I had just um, given birth to our second son. And I was thinking about, wow, we're in a global pandemic. It was early days, and a lot of people were dying, and I was cradling a new baby. I had a two-year-old son, and so the weekend, I remember it vividly, I was sitting at home on a Sunday, and I decided, you know what, this is the time, life is short, am I doing the thing that I believe is my calling? And I always wanted to be closer to the storytelling process. I always wanted to be a producer. In some ways, being an agent, I've helped my clients put together hundreds of series. So Pachinko is one of those stories that I felt most personal to me, but I've done my 10,000 if not 20,000 hours in getting shows made, getting films made. And this moment two years ago, I felt Blue Marble, there's a reason for it to exist and I had a personal commitment to it. But what Blue Marble really means, my husband actually named it. I love that. Blue Marble is the name of the famous photograph of Earth from the 70s and it's taken out of a space shuttle. And looking at the Blue Marble photograph, you realize it's a photo of Earth. And with all this turmoil in our world at the time, when you look at that blue marble, you think about, wow, we're all connected, we're all united. And it made me think about the journeys ahead of us as opposed to what divides us. So the kinds of shows and movies and the kind of clients I represent all tend to be ones, stories and artists who talk about humanity, who really are challenging where are we going and uh, really talk about the human condition. And Pachinko is definitely that. White Darkness is definitely that. And a lot of the shows that I've been involved with over the last almost 17, 18 years also fit into that same category. I think the idea of looking at the earth from zoomed out, I think it's because this show is so specific about the Korean diaspora, but it's so universal. It really, When you zoom out, anyone can relate to the themes among countries and cultures. It really doesn't matter. Especially, there's two aspects, I think, that really hit home for people. The love that feels right, but violates values. It 
asks you to both trust yourself and betray yourself and about family, how the unwavering support, but also the limits of that relationship. And so there's so much to relate to here. We've talked a little bit about what you saw in the story and why you wanted to champion it. How did it find you? Well, for one, having worked in entertainment for so many years, I often thought about what is a story that my family can connect to. My father owned a chain of video stores growing up, so I used to work at his store. So I've, I come from having worked there. I love cinema. And my father used to tell me about cinema masters from Korea, from Mexico, from Europe, all of America, all over the world. So, you know, it's interesting. The producers on Pachinko are all cinephiles, and everyone has this great lexicon of film and I think that that's been a uniting factor but the other thing is how did it find me I I guess I've always been looking for a story to tell for my parents and for Koreans and that specificity was completely in the book I mean the, the book is really incredible I kept weeping while reading it I was trying not to but it's it is so universal and I thought to myself wow this author really captured what it feels like to be Korean what it feels like to be a daughter what it feels like to be a mother, a grandmother, I'm sure. So many different identities. It's, it's interesting when I hear about feedback from the show now. One of my friends, she's Cuban-American, she saw the show with her mother. And they were sharing with me, it still gives me chills, about when her mother left her own mother from Cuba mm-hmm. when she had to leave. My Jewish-American friends talk something similar in their own past and their own families. And friends in Europe talk about how they felt connected to it as well. So... If I really think about it, I think I've always been looking for a story like this to start with my family, my community, for Korea. Many people don't know about Korean history. When I was growing up, most people thought I was Chinese or Japanese. And I would say right around 1988, once the Korea Olympics happened, people started talking about, oh, that's Korea. And of course, older generation knew about Korea from the Korean War. But that's a huge gap between those generations. And this book really talked about Korean history. So it was like all those connective tissues that when I first heard about the book and I read it, there was this moment of, wow, this is incredibly specific to feeling Korean. But like I mentioned, anyone can relate to it. I thought that was the mastery of of the novel. Yeah, that's like the scene at the wedding. Solomon is talking to the other woman and saying, what do they think you are? I get Chinese, Japanese a second and how the differences are not as known as they should be. And so this brings that right. to light. Yeah. You reminded me, you know, Naomi, the, the Japanese character yes. in that yes. scene. thank you. Of course. And, you know, with Solomon being in Japan, he's Korean, but in Japan, the several times when I was a kid, my family would visit our relatives in Korea. It would blow my mind that you get off the plane and every single person is Korean. <laughs> the first few times I was like, wow, this is... This is unusual. And for Solomon, he's Asian, but he's a Korean person in a Japanese foreign land, essentially. But it's also his home. Yeah. And I think that growing up Korean-American, you can definitely relate to that. Someone asked me recently, do you identify first um, as a woman or as a person of color? And I used to think it was woman, but if I really look back at my past, it's not about how I view myself. It's how people view me first. Yes. And how they treat me as a result. And when I really think about it, it's actually, I identify first as Asian in America because that's how people treat me first. And then woman. So it's not something that I can necessarily pick. Yes. Yes. Oh, that makes so much sense. That's right. And Solomon is also American. He's got American ideas and American ideals. And that is even a, a nuance that is explored very well. Yeah, he has three identities. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Not just three languages, but three real identities. And, and right. all that come with different 
textures. Right, and, it, and if you remember the subtitles, the Korean languages, when he speaks in Korean, it's in yellow. Yes. And when he speaks in Japanese, it's blue. And when you're growing up in a household with multiple languages spoken, that code switching is so evident. So at home with his family, he's Korean. He exits the house and he's Japanese. And then he goes to work, he's Japanese, and he brings his Americanness as well. Yes. And I think that's a really interesting composite of a contemporary character. Absolutely. Yeah. So I heard you discuss, and you're, you're talking about it a little bit now, that you wanted this to be a show that families could sit and watch together. And I was thinking for myself, at my late father's behest, we all used to sit and watch the Godfather movies. We watched all of them together. And then I never forget watching the Thornbirds with my mother. And then I read the books and I devoured that. And I really did think about that when I heard you say that, that yes, this is another one of those types of shows so I was curious, why was that co-watching experience so meaningful to you and so important for you to impart in the show? It's so funny you mentioned the two other references that we've been talking about on the show. Godfather 2 oh, and also a 21st century Thornbirds. So you, okay. you really got what the intention was. You know the feeling of watching something with your parents when you're growing up? You feel it's an automatic buy-in that, and you're kind of discovering and going to be surprised together. And there's so few shows and movies that one can do that with. Like, great, you can go watch a Marvel movie together or a Disney movie with your young kids, but what is there for once you're 12 and up? And that bond when you're sitting at home Friday night with the popcorn with your parents or whatever night you are, those are some of my favorite moments with my family. Yeah. And those moments are fewer and farther between. And I think when you watch this show, it should be experienced with the family or with your friends, whoever it may be. But it is a rare one where you actually can. Yeah. There's history. We don't view the show as a history lesson in any way, but it does have a sense of gravitas to it that it does come from a place from the past. We always try to treat it where the past should feel as exciting and interesting as the present. It shouldn't feel like you're going back to a period piece. Mm -hmm. Meaning the past storyline characters are as interesting as any of the contemporary characters. So it just goes back to, you know, co-viewing. It's why I think also theatrical experiences are so amazing. To watch something together instead of watching one show and binging all by yourself and then texting your friends about it. Yeah. That also works. It, yeah, but that's this a specifically experience. has the ability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a different experience. When you can do that, you get a little glimmer into, Kate and I talk a lot about when you see your parents as something human that is not just your parent. And we've also now been thinking about when you see your child as someone separate from you. And when you see this kind of multi-generational show and story, you can get glimpses of that, of what that could feel like, what that could be like, and, and everyone does. The parents do, the children do. I, I think it's a really interesting way because it's hard to crack that for your own family. It really is hard to see them as someone, even as a fully grown adult. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it's also what you shared just now struck a chord with me because that's also something we often talk about. You know, when you look at a picture of your parents when they were younger, or you you look at a picture of your grandparents. I never met any of my grandparents. Unfortunately, all four passed away before I was born. And when I look at their photographs, in my memory, forever, it's just photographs. Unless my parents could fill in the memories and details for me. But it's really just oral history that we have. And one thing we oftentimes don't realize is those memories that we have of these people, I feel we carry them with us in some ways because it's passed to us by our parents, their stories, their emotional journeys. And they lived as real, full-blooded a life as we're living now. And when you watch Pachinko, you definitely feel that. 
And to your point, the first time I realized my mother was a woman, yes. meaning a woman with her own complications, her own struggles, her own life, and not just me looking at her through the lens of my mother. Right. It really blew my mind, and yeah. it took years. I was in my 30s. Yeah. So in this adaptation, the narrative structure is a major departure from the book. The book is written in chronological order, but the show weaves together the past and the present. We understand this was the vision of Sue Hugh, the showrunner. What was your reaction when she said, this is how I see it? Were you concerned? How will we do this? How will it work? Were you excited? Maybe both? What was the I reaction? actually thought it was a brilliant idea. But we had two directors, Koganada, who did four episodes, and Justin Chan, who directed four episodes, and Sue was our writer-showrunner. And when we first started talking about the book, remember, we, we all knew it was a tough sell. I remember talking with her and Michael Ellenberg, the studio exec and producer on it as well, and we're like, okay, we cannot pitch a deep period, 1900s beginning, knowing that this book gets to 1990s. That's going to take, I don't know, four, five, six, seven, eight seasons. Right. We already knew it's trilingual. Pretty much all Asian casts are close to it. And it had to be told in an epic scale. To add the linear timeline was going to be a fourth challenge. And so Sue came back and said, what do you think about this? And what she came up with not only worked from setting up strategy and selling strategy, that was actually secondary. It worked incredibly from a storytelling narrative where you have these two generations speaking to one another and the thematics continually also connecting. I thought that made for a better storytelling experience for a visual language as well. Yes. And I think that's really what is a special sauce in the adaptation. Yeah. Yes. Now, I heard her say that it's like uh, two coming-of-age stories, and she also said it's like, by doing it this way, the past and the present are in dialogue with each other, and I totally agree, and that was that's right, really brilliant. So you talked about some of these things, but once you got this green light and you, you convinced people to do this big project, there were a lot of pieces then to put together as the executive producer, casting the younger and older versions of the same characters, transporting us to Japanese-occupied Korea, the use of two different directors, as you said. So what were just some of the unique production challenges that you were faced in terms of presenting a unified vision? I mean, you touched on some of them, but it was complicated, to use our favorite word. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, when we set it up, we had five offers, and we felt we had so many great potential partners, and we chose Apple for a variety of reasons. There's an executive there, Michelle Lee, who is a complete advocate, and also Zach Manamberg, who runs a service. And so my part was coming up with the strategy to sell it. I also negotiated all the deals between this, advising the studio with Apple, negotiating what the budget's going to be, and on and on. And so during production, you know, one of the things that the last two years, while we're all sitting in our sweatpants during the pandemic, what we really wanted to do was create a show that was beautiful and stunning and that would transport you but it did obviously come with its challenges kate the casting was i love casting when i was helping my clients put together shows i'm like what about this person this could this person could be interesting and being a producer you're really in the details of it and that that was one of my favorite parts actually and the key is with this show about multiple generations finding characters in both timelines at a the narrative can speak to one another via the cast, as well as casts who have chemistry with one another. And so what's interesting about the setup of this cast is you have a legendary actor like Yoon Yeo-jung. She won the Oscar for Minari, but she's also been well-known for decades. If you know Korean cinema, she's a major legend. She's, she's I would consider her a national treasure in Korea. And so I've seen her first film, 
I've seen many of her films. And so she was a, a bit of a no-brainer. And then you have this global superstar in Lee Min-ho who brought his own charisma to it. And when he came into audition, which he never auditions, or he hasn't auditioned in 13 years, he brought a whole new level of not just charisma, but humanity to the character. That also feels different from the book. He elevated that. And then discovering new actors, we had this incredible casting director, casting directors, I should say, and one of them was Sue Kim. She is based in Korea, and she found these incredible actors for us, and she turned over every rock, every leaf, and she brought some amazing choices to us. And Min Ha Kim, who plays the teenage Sanja, was one of those discoveries. One of our actors, Eun Chae Jung, who plays Kyung Hee, who's coming out in this new episode, she's a really big name in South Korea and Asia as well. And so we were fortunate to have so many great actors, and you know, we have two Zionichi, real-life Zionichi actors, Sohi Arai, who plays Mozasu, Solomon's father, and the woman, Kaho Minami, who plays Etsuko, his girlfriend. Both of them are Zainichi Koreans who grew up in Japan, and it was amazing to have them part of the cast as well. That was one of my best moments. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear because everyone is so amazing. Their acting, the portrayals of these characters are just exactly what I would have pictured and wanted out of them. Well, our directors, so Koganada directed four of them, including the pilot. Justin Chan directed four of them, including the finale. And each of them brought their own sense of artistry, aesthetic, and emotionality to it as well. So when you watch the first three episodes, which are Koganada's, they're stunning and he he's more of a formalist and then you see justin's episode and it takes you on another journey that's when the family leaves to japan so you see that journey that they're about to embark upon and i'm just personally very grateful that they joined as well i wanted to zoom out a little bit on your career you've you touched on this a little bit and and maybe that's all you want to share but i'll ask about the timing of it all and I wasn't sure because some things can happen quickly and some things take a really long time. So I didn't want to necessarily tie your move to the pandemic, but it sounds like it was inspired by it, at least uh, in part. And then also you mentioned your second child and you were moving from a very traditional established institution into something where you were really, you know, bringing it to life uh, on your own. I've had similar experiences where you just get clarity. And for, for me, it was also my second child. And there's also urgency. Like, this is the time to do something. So it sounds like all of that was kind of in the stew of your decision to, to do it. And did you hesitate? You just knew? You just threw yourself into it? I, I wanted to just find out a little bit more about you're, because it's a, you were at the top of your game at WME and you did not have to do something like this. And you've talked about the power of storytelling and the creative process and wanting to be closer to that, but it still was an important pivot. Yeah. But can I just say, Corinne is a pivoter. So she, she's asking this, but she's done it. So yeah. she knows how. I will raise my hand and be like, partner in a law firm and don't know how to pivot. So I'm actually <laughs> listening for tangible advice here. So please go ahead. I'm like, Corinne is much, yeah. I'm risk averse. She is much more of a pivoter. Well, I'm, just so you know, I've been a complete risk averse person. Okay. I do not gamble in Vegas. Yeah, I don't like neither. the idea of yeah. losing money, right, me Kate? Neither. Why do I want to lose money? Why would I do that? Yeah. Why would I do that? I don't want to get to no. that. No, but I think part of it is, if I'm being honest, 
My family went bankrupt when I was in high school. And going through that experience, I think it was very formative in the fact that I didn't think that my father was an entrepreneur. He started and founded 12 video stores, and they were very successful, actually. And my mother is a classically trained pianist, and she was a piano teacher. And actually, going through that experience, it took out any chance of me wanting to take any risk. So for me, I kept looking for an established place to work, being salaried, having that stability, was that foundation was what I felt I needed. And being at the agency, I was there for a total of 17 years and I loved it. I thrive there. I love my colleagues. I still miss my colleagues, even though I still talk to, they're still my friends, obviously, still talk to them all the time. But I just never saw myself doing anything entrepreneurial. And if I'm being honest, it has to do with my adolescence. And when the pandemic happened, when you realize life's too short, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? I was scared shitless. I didn't know if I should do it. I didn't know if it was the right answer. I also thought, gosh, am I known as Teresa King at this agency or am I known for me? And that would have to be tested. And what I realized when I left is my relationships flourished and I'm so glad I did it. But I am also so grateful to my time at the agency because it built an incredible foundation for what I do now. You know, working at a talent agency, they're not the easiest places to work. But for anyone who's fortunate enough to work there, you learn everything you need to know about how a television show, film, podcast, you name it, is built and made. How it actually gets distributed. You you learn everything about it. So I don't think I could do this, what I'm doing now, in the way that I'm doing it, had I not done what I did. But it was it was a pandemic that finally unlocked in me. You know what? I have to do the thing that maybe perhaps is in my blood to go out on my own, try something new, take a chance. By the way, it did take one or two people in my life who literally or almost literally had to put their foot in my back. I'm like, you have to do this. I wish I could say it was all me. No, I, I'm human. So I had I had a lot of concerns and thoughts. But to me, the idea of staying were doing what I really enjoy, but not in the exact way that I wanted to be doing it. It became anathema to me at one point. Mm. And I really wanted to continue representing clients. That's definitely in my DNA. So I was able to make that transition, continuing to represent my clients. Mm -hmm. And I, that'll never get old for me. I really Mm -hmm. always love advocating for artists. Yeah. So, so you said that you are passionate about amplifying original voices who use the power of storytelling to craft transformational experiences about the human condition. We read that. So with that in mind, how do you identify the material that you want to adapt? Like what is the magic you're looking for? With any project, I always look for, is this disruptive in any way? Is it Ooh. fresh? Is it interesting? Pachinko is definitely that. It's disruptive. It's, it is fresh. It's original. And what I always think about is, there's another project I'm thinking about that we're developing right now. And I just look for, you know, I mentioned earlier, when someone tells me, this one's a tough one. That's when I get interested. Yeah. Like, why? <laughs> like, that means yeah. it's, it's new. That means that they have something to get off their chest. And I'm always thinking about that. And the other thing I always think about is growing up Korean American and my parents being immigrants, trying to figure out their place um, in America, myself included, you have a very deep connection to the word foreign. You feel foreign. My family's foreign. You're treated as foreign. I'm trying to find my place here. And so one of the other things I often look for in a project is how do you take that project that feels disruptive and original that might feel foreign? 
And how do you make that feel familiar to everybody? And I'm a big believer, and I think this is having grown up working at a video store, is if you think about what really is the power of cinema, it's being able to transport empathy. I can tell you all the movies and TV shows I've seen as a kid where I learned about someone new. I'm like, oh, wow, that's what's happening to this young woman in this country. Or the first time I saw gay characters depicted on screen. I used to have the biggest crush on Pedro Zamora on Real World Season 1. So, (laughs) you know, and I think that films and television have the ability to express that empathy. And I think there's nothing more powerful than emotion. I still remember, so I've only seen Steven Spielberg's film Empire of the Sun once. And it was enough to mess me up forever. Mm -hmm. The scene where young Christian Bale gets lost from his parents is forever seared into my mind. Yeah, yeah. And that scene, coincidentally, it's also talked about and referenced by Suhi, or showrunner in Pachinko season one. But I've always had this connection to that movie. And that is the power of storytelling. Yes. Those things stay with you. You want to see if I could segue into my <laughs> our obligatory question that there's never a good segue for? So <laughs> you've already heard that we're both lawyers. With that comes a little bit of a white knuckle grip on life, a little bit of control freaks. And Type so, a. Yeah. But so in the past few years, we've gotten turned on to astrology as a way of letting go a little bit. and to, I love that. Yay. Well, to remind <laughs> us that we're not in charge, that there's a bigger universe and whatnot. So we always ask, what's your sign and do you relate to it? My three best friends were all really excited about astrology. Oh, it's like a, it's like our love language to each other. No, this is us. This is oh, us. Oh yeah, it's our love language. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. It's, oh, I, it's just I fun. Just it kind of takes you out of your. No, genuinely, <laughs> we we bond over it. It's. Okay. I'm not saying I believe every part of it, obviously, but I do think. My three best friends, two of them are in academia, and the other one's a dentist. Okay. Very passionate about dentistry, by the way. Okay. Probably the best and dentist astrology. that I know. And astrology. So I'll get texts throughout the year, like, Mercury's in retrograde, watch yeah. out. It's really adorable. Yeah. I am a Libra sun, oh, okay. Leo rising, and an Aquarius moon. Oh, That's how much man. I know about my astrology. That's a lot. <laughs> that is yeah. a lot. Kate, what what are what are you? I'm a Leo. Basically, my entire chart is all Leo, but I have I have a couple others sprinkled in. It's it's bizarrely disproportionate to Leo, but I am a Leo Sun, Libra rising, and Leo Moon. So I do have the Leo Leo and Libra switch. Oh, I like that. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of Leo, like in even in all the other areas. Kate and I are very obsessed with three other signs right now. Your Venus sign, which is how you connect with people. Your Mercury, which is how you communicate. And then your Mars, which is how you take action. So those those are your next uh, ones to look into. Tell your friends those. You just look that up. Do like your full chart. You just need your time of birth and then you can plug it into one of these online things. Very cool. Yeah. So I do want to come back to Pachinko. And I think you've already hinted at something here. So there's material in the nearly 500-page book that is not fully explored in this season. Is there an idea for more? Is that the goal? What are we going to say for the future? Absolutely. Our goal is to do additional seasons. You know, we're really hoping we can tell these stories because there is so much great story to tell. But there is a plan. We just need to make sure it happens. And I know you also mentioned, uh, we said it in the bio, The White Darkness. That's your other project that you're developing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's actually, it was greenlit a year ago. 
and we've been working on it steadily. It's also with Sue Hu, the showrunner and creator of Pachinko, and she's creating this show. So The White Darkness um, is based on this David Grant article, or I should say book, and it's this incredible true story about a British man named Henry Worsley, who in 2015 did the impossible, and he trekked across Antarctica solo. Mm. And... 30 miles from his thousand mile goal, he called it in and knew he couldn't go any further. And sadly, he passed away the next day. And it's really a story. He was this incredible Renaissance man. You know, he was a military soldier. He traveled all around the world um, as a soldier, but he was an incredible husband, father, and he was a complicated person as we all are. Mm. And the idea of why these explorers of why they feel they have to go to the farthest reaches. Antarctica is one of the most inhospitable places on the planet. And what was so interesting in reading this piece that David wrote, it's heartbreaking and it's heartwarming actually, Mm. is the love that his wife, Joanna, and he had and the stories that we've heard about from his children and the people surrounding his life was incredible. And, you know, Stu is creating it and Mark Heyman is our showrunner. He wrote this incredible movie, Black Swan, Mm. and he created and ran a show called Strange Angel that went for two seasons. And so the two of them are architecting the vision for this limited series that stars Tom Hiddleston, who I actually know from having worked with him and the rest of the actual production team on The Night Manager. And he's amazing as Loki, obviously, in everything he's done. But it's based on this incredible piece in The New Yorker called The White Darkness that David Grant wrote. And if you don't know David Grant and you want to have something exciting to read, Read anything he's written, in particular, Killers of the Flower Moon that Apple TV Plus is also making right now with Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, But David Grant is this iconic, incredible writer, and we're putting a production plan into place. It's interesting. Sue had mentioned that Pachinko is a story about mothers and daughters, and The White Darkness is a story about fathers and their children. Mm. And it's a it's a really good parallel. But when you read this article, and I think the adaptation will be the same way, it is so emotional and so powerful. I can't wait for audiences to see it. Heartbreaking and heartwarming, they do go hand in hand, and they're my favorite when you get that mix to break your heart and then put it back together. I remember when I read Pachinko, and I was in a tough place in my life, and I wasn't sure what I was doing in in so many ways. And when the adaptation came out on Apple, I couldn't have said I remembered every single piece of it, but I remembered how it made me feel. And it made me feel that combination of from heartbreak can come something so beautiful and wonderful and a whole life comes out of it and heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time. That's that's life. Mm-hmm. So if you'll indulge for a moment, I we wanted to talk about like a small degree of separation. The reason we started this podcast was actually related to one of your clients, I believe Gillian Flynn. I was listening to a podcast, which is a podcast I'm not going to name because I, I really like it. I normally listen. Very famous. Yes. And I enjoy it very much. But they were talking about Gone Girl and it happened to be mostly men, a group of men, and they talked about David Fincher's genius and Ben Affleck's legacy, all legitimate, real things to talk about. But then it was two and a half hours. And after two and a half hours, not even a mention of Gillian Flynn and barely anything for Rosamund Pike and her incredible portrayal. Incredible. Yeah. So 
I was so angry after I listened to that episode. And I was like, where is the point of view that supplements that? Where is the point of view that looks at? Gillian not only wrote the source material, but also the screenplay. And and Rosemond, as I said, was, was so brilliant in it. And barely a mention. So I mm. texted Kate and I said, I got We have to have it. lunch, first of all. We have to have lunch. I have an idea. And I was like, yes. I don't know what the <laughs> idea is, but yes, no. Yeah. It, that was basically how it went. But Whoa. she sat. we sat down for lunch and that was, she's like, I need to talk about this. And she was still so angry. And That's an incredible story. Pop yeah. Fiction Women was born. Was yes, born. it all started with her. Being yeah. just so upset. Moment of rage. The, yes. It started with your anger and your passion Yes. And in some ways, thanks to those dudes, yeah, yeah, for making you angry. Exactly, and we wouldn't not be here. Recognizing the brilliance of Gillian <laughs> Flynn and yes. Rosamund Pike. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's incredible. And our podcast has expanded so much beyond just being a woman, but it is told from our point of view. And Kate and I see different things. Woman doesn't mean one thing. So yeah. I really enjoy the podcast and the fact that the two of you, as women, did found it. Yeah. You know, I think also to hear the perspective, even to be invited this way, would I have been invited on a different kind of podcast? Sure. But I think this conversation also feels more effortless as women who work, parents, and there's so much connection there. And there's this common language that is just implicit, even among differences. That's right. And then my other question for you to start a flip-flop is, was the first podcast you did talking about Gone Girl? No, we haven't done we it can't. yet. We, we can't. can't. The other thing is that I didn't mention, it is one of my favorite books of all time. I have several copies around here. Wow. I've read it so many times. I've convinced Kate it's the best book ever. She's still not 100% on board, but I can't stop talking about it. The book, the movie, all of it. So she can't. Uh, it's just it would be too much. We actually started with when Harry met Sally. It was our first. <laughs> oh, movie. that's a great yeah. entry. Started with a classic. Yes. One yes. of my favorite films. Yeah. I will tell you when I first I, w- I wanted to represent Gillian. She had no idea who I was, and I reached out to her. I ended up getting to know her through her book agent, and she has what I was talking about earlier. Her stories are disruptive. Yeah. They are original. They are fresh. Her point of view is interesting. And when I first heard about her, it was from it was from a friend of mine who was a studio exec at Fox. And I had lunch with I would have lunch with him once a year. Like, who do I need to know from your world, the film world? And he said, Gillian Flynn. I mean, you know of her name as a author. This is years ago. And he said, but what you don't know is she's an incredible screenwriter. Yeah. And that's when I went. Okay. Oh my God. She has another superpower. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Right. And since then, you know, she's become a showrunner. She ran her own show. She's a producer. Utopia. Yes, yeah. Utopia. Um, that's um, right. Forgetting the name of the movie, the other movie, the heist movie, which was fantastic. I think Widows. Was, yes, yes. Thank you. I thought that yes, was fantastic. Yes, I love that as movie. Well. Yeah. Little she's, known fact: she's hilarious. Oh, oh yes. I I people watch. often think, oh, is she dark? I'm like she's hilarious and has a best sense of humor. Oh, I love that. Yeah, which often is the case when you write really yes. dark stuff. Your personality yeah. is very off the cuff, casual, make you laugh, smart, bitingly funny. We I love have it. found that. Yes, yes. a lot of the authors. That's right. Yeah. So, two quick questions to wrap up here. Kate and I talk about having a theme. I don't know about how music plays into your life, but we music is like on the background of everything we do, and we often talk about having a theme song. And like the song that you put on that like gets you going or is like in the place that you're in right now. 
do you have a song that you go to and like this is I need to put my song on and get ready so music also is a big motivator and just we all have soundtracks yeah. in yes. our lives yeah. and my mother, she's a classically trained pianist. I played piano for many years. My sister played an instrument for many years. So I woke up every morning listening to my mother playing piano. And on wow. the weekends, the house is just filled with the teaching of her students and her playing. So I often think about music. By the way, the music of Pachinko is amazing. Uh, Nico yes. Mooley, whoa. I there's so many treats within the show, but Nico's music is incredible. I love that you said that about the piano, though. My grandmother also plays piano mm. and I regret that I didn't learn from her but for release the first opening bars I'm just in my grandmother's house I transported there immediately and that music can do that for you absolutely like well yeah. I'll tell you what I was listening to last night as I was surfing the internet I was listening to Nina Simone I was listening to old school Coldplay from like the the ops okay. and so it was I was just kind of going back and forth between um, Nina and Coldplay but I also love pop music and k-pop like that's on rotation but I, I really I'm open to anything and everything but those are those are the two I was listening to last night love some old-school Coldplay love it in preparation for this interview I was listening to Big Energy by Lotto have you heard that oh one God, I love that no song. love that song. Big Energy. Oh, yeah yes. I love that I'll check it out today it samples Mariah Carey's fantasy and there's a remix where Mariah is actually on it DJ yeah. Khaled is in it oh big energy as you you're, might imagine you're gonna like it big energy that's a your, good show your Leo rising is really gonna like it <laughs> <laughs> big energy. I'll do it just for them there you go <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking this time. It was an absolute pleasure so talking to you. I didn't expect anything else, but it was just wonderful to get your insights and to hear so many of the experiences you're, you've been through. It's fascinating. So, thank, thank you yes. for having me. And I, I just want to say thank you both for having this podcast and for amplifying our stories and our voices. Thank you. That means a lot to us. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.